You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning weekly hour of chat about all things medical and psychological. And then there were two. <laughs> yes, we're officially down half our team this morning, leaving just me, Dr Autonomy, and the sweet, sweet lolly dog here in the studio with you. As for the other half of our team, well, they've both absconded for the long weekend. Don't know what they're up to. We did contemplate doing the whole show with just me and Lolly Doc. I was having fantasies about a kind of Margaret and David rapport blossoming between us as we review medical interventions and psychological strategies for the general public, you know, disagreeing in a warm and light-hearted style that just resonates with people. Soon we'd be noticed by the ABC, who are still secretly wondering how to fill that gap, but we'd politely decline, explaining that our hearts lie with community radio and specifically the anonymity that comes with using pseudonyms. But then I had the realisation, possibly for the first time in my life, that there might actually be a bit of a gap between the way that I imagine it and the way it plays out in reality. So instead of just going with me and Lolly Doc, I locked in not one but two special guests who are going to hold your attention and intrigue you in a style way beyond what we could do on our own. First up, we've got Carol Ireland. She's the CEO of Epilepsy Action Australia. Did you know that more than half a million Australians will be affected by epilepsy in their lifetime? And at least 50% of people with epilepsy have no known cause for their seizure disorder. Well, Carol is going to talk about some of the latest approaches to helping families, and particularly kids, with epilepsy. And I doubt they're the approaches that you might be imagining as well. For example, one approach uses comic books and another uses medicinal cannabis. Yep, for epilepsy in kids. Can't wait to hear about that one. Sure to be a fascinating conversation. And Carol's going to join us on the phone all the way from Sydney, fingers crossed. And as well as Carol, we've got Professor Lee Waters, who is Director of the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne. Lee is a sought-after public speaker who's even given a TED Talk, and she's joining us this morning to talk about a new theory on parenting called strength-based parenting. Have you heard about positive psychology? Well, it's quite a new and rapidly growing branch of psychology that's all about showing us how to utilise the strengths and positive qualities that already reside within us and also within our children. Lee's going to help us understand how positive psychology can make us better parents and make the task of parenting much more enjoyable too. As the mother of a one-year-old, I'm going to be taking lots of notes, I assure you. So grab a cup of coffee, get your pen ready and settle in as we bring you some laughs, some ketchup and more as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Lolly, it's just you and me in the studio. What then there were two, do? that's what you said. And then there were two. Although I'm wondering, Margaret and Dave, the analogy, are you Margaret or am I Margaret? <laughs> um, why do you ask? Well, I don't know. I, I don't imagine myself as a Dave Stratton. Don't you? No. What's the sticking point? Um... The jumpers are total... Do you think? I've got, I've got my grandpa jump. jumper on. <laughs> I love it. It does have skulls, though, so it's kind of like a, you know, it's hardcore grandpa. Yeah, well, you don't look hardcore. Don't I? No, not no. even close. I didn't even shave, just like, you know, just to kind of complete the look. Complete, complete the grandpa yep, look. face yeah. for radio. Do you know where the other two are? Um, aren't they overseas? 
Are they? I think so. I think one. I think um, Miss Medic's overseas. I don't think Miss Medic's overseas. <laughs> is it she? If she is, she hasn't told me right. about it. Okay. But maybe yeah. that's how things work these days. Maybe. And Dr. Malice might be overseas. He might. Yeah. Be. Who knows? Who knows? So They've just left us in the lurch, though. Do you think we're going to be we've got okay? Two good guests. Amazing mm. guests. They'll oh, look. They'll be all right. Yeah. Now I don't know if I mentioned this to you through the week, but you know the guests aren't going to be on for a good sort of ten, fifteen minutes. So we do have a bit of space to fill in until then. I was hoping that you might be able to help. Hey, really? Yeah. Oh, look, I brought something in. Oh, I thought you might have. Yeah, no, no. Look, I've got, I've got, I've got a, I've got a couple of um, research topics to talk about, and interestingly, uh, you do know how I like gender differences, and and uh, is that code for? Articles about penises? No, I'm actually not going to talk about anything to do with penises or vaginas today. It's a nice change. I know. I thought you'd, you know, I thought I'd kind of I'm a bit ramp disappointed, it up a bit. I know. I know, I know. Secretly, nice you are disappointed. <laughs> do you know, actually, did I tell you? Uh, I, I think I told you. Maybe I didn't. Um, I think it was last month we had a caller and we'd been referring to your um, penchant for articles about penises and they called up to say, where are the vagina articles? It's all one-sided. You know, what's going on? Did I share that with you? Uh, no, you didn't. But now that you have, I'll uh, I'll be digging the archives. Yeah, for, just a um, note for future shows. Yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, shall we lift the bar a bit? Mm, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Um, so this is this is an interesting uh, bit of research, which is which is not particularly new, but um, it's a Stanford Uni uh, research uh, paper that looks at the differences between men and women's brains when they cooperate. Um, so what they did was get uh, 220 participants, half men, half women, and they uh, ran them through a series of cooperation tests. They're pretty basic tests. They're uh, they're basically they sit across um, from each other with a computer. Each and um, shapes pop up and when the shapes are the shapes they're expected to cooperate on, they press a button and they time when uh, when they've pressed the button. And what they found was that men who worked with men uh, had the best uh, timing, so they, they, their, their timing um, scores were, were most similar and they were uh, they cooperated better than women-women uh, uh, partners. Uh, but interestingly, same-sex partners um, cooperated better than men-women partners, which gave some indication that there was something different about cooperation between men and women, or the way men and women thought about cooperation, a cooperation task. So men-women was the least successful, next was women-women, and the most cooperative was men-men. Is correct. That right? Yeah, correct. Now, I'm not going to draw any conclusions from this study whatsoever, and the researchers don't draw any conclusions. What they did was actually map the brain functionally as they were doing these tasks. Um, they haven't mapped the whole brain, so there's only parts of the brain that they were looking at. Uh, so there may be parts of the brain that weren't being mapped that uh, men and women use actually quite similarly, but the ones that they were mapping were used quite differently. So it just just demonstrates that men and women think about cooperation tasks differently. <laughs> and you can you can put that into any social context you like and draw any parallels. I thought it would make good fodder for... Well, here we are cooperating, you know, live on air. We are, and there's a little timing issue. <laughs> and there's a bit of inter-brain coherence problems, but other than that, it's Speak going quite well. Yeah, okay, I was. <laughs> um, I don't quite understand how they measured cooperation. So is it about the timing that they pressed a button when these shapes came on the screen, or is it actually about the way their brain looked? So it's it's both. Okay. So the, the timing the timing measures 
the um, so the, the closer you are in timing, the more uh, similar you are in approaching the task, and that's a, a proxy measure of cooperation, if you like. As, as I said, it's a simplistic measure. Well, it's sort of a measure of similarity, really, isn't it? It is. It is because there's not a lot of cooperation. You're doing it on your own, and you're just hoping that the person at the other end is doing it in the same time frame. Yeah. So I mean, cooperation is approaching one task simultaneously, isn't it? Really. <laughs> Uh, so, so what the researchers were saying was that the that the they were saying that the cooperation was being measured as the the timing, hmm. and the functional measure of the map was which areas they were using to achieve that task result. Right. Um, in terms of rigor of scientific <laughs> method, yeah, it's yeah, probably yeah. not up there. Do on they the make any hypotheses? Do they do they say anything interesting about what it might mean? Well, what they were using it for was to look at um, autism and how it may relate to uh, cooperation for people on the autism spectrum. So they were mapping the same parts of the brain that um, uh, were least functional in in people who are on the autism spectrum. Mm. And they were comparing those and seeing if there were any gender differences and whether they could use that to perhaps, um, I guess, jump another study uh, to look at how you might um, implement cooperation tasks for those with autism, who, who people who struggle, I guess, to to both socially and functionally interact with others. Interesting. Hmm. Moving right along. Moving right along. You got uh, anyth- I've got something else if you don't have anything well, else. Well, I, but I you- actually do, but why don't you tell us about what you've got? Well, I was reading an article about um, IVF, really, and the ethical implications of it this week. So I don't know if you heard a while ago there was an issue that came up where a woman had used donor embryos. So um, neither the sperm nor the egg were her her own. The whole embryo was donated to her by another couple, another woman. Um, And those were implanted into her. And when the IVF centre checked in with her about uh, whether that had resulted in a pregnancy, she said, no, it hadn't resulted in a pregnancy. Mostly it turns out because she was feeling uncomfortable about the obligation to be in contact with the person who had donated the embryo once the child was born. And so she decided that even though she was pregnant, she decided to tell them that she wasn't pregnant. And this is all alleged. And then went on to have a child and the person who had donated the embryo saw on Facebook that, you know, nine months later she had a child um, who looked suspiciously like this, this woman's children that she already had. And so it's called into question this this idea and um, this dilemma of what rights IVF clinics have to be certain about whether a pregnancy has eventuated or not. So at the moment they ask someone to come in and take a blood test to you know determine whether they're pregnant, but someone could say, I don't want to take the blood test, which is what this what happened in this scenario, and then they don't actually know. And so there was a big board meeting um, with the um, Infertility Society of Australia this week and they've actually decided that they're going to up the ante and require people to have the blood test um, post-implantation or, you know, post... um, um, delivery of whatever service they're having so that they can tell whether the person has become pregnant or not. And if they refuse to have the blood test, they can then be taken to state authorities. Wow. Yeah. That's that's quite extreme, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Um, okay. So I really don't yeah, know. On the spot. This is, yeah, exactly right. So um, at the moment when when 
couples um, go through IVF mm. and they sign consents for going through the IVF process, yeah. do they have to continue going through that IVF process once they've conceived? I don't think they do. Well, well what probably... would they have to do? There would be nothing left to do. Well, they... <laughs> <laughs> you know what have I mean? a baby. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, IVF, um, from memory, this is not an area of my expertise, but from memory, IVF doesn't necessarily increase your your risk of complicated pregnancies. No. Aside from there's a higher risk of twin pregnancies um, in yeah. certain forms of IVF, and that does increase <coughs> your risk of complications. Yeah, but no, so effectively after you've conceived, there's no, I guess, medical reason for you to still be in contact with them. Um, the issue comes in, though, with these um, donor scenarios where agreements have been made, and I think agreements um, can be different depending on the individuals involved, but in this particular case, the embryo were donated on the understanding that um, the donor would be able to have contact with the resulting child. But then the woman who was pregnant felt that she didn't want to do that and so this was her right. way of getting around it. But Is that, you know, is that a failure of counselling perhaps well, or pre, pre-conception counselling yeah. rather than a... Um, you know, a failure of the IVF program per se or the donor program per se? Yeah, I think that's a really astute comment. And part of the um, things that came out of this was that one of the changes is also going to be um, more documentation through the counselling process about what the individual parties agree to. Because uh, you can imagine that, I mean, there's, there's so many emotions involved on, on both sides with these sorts of scenarios and mm. I guess being really clear about what people want and why and what the potential outcomes are and then what would happen is a key part of the process before you get to the point of conception, isn't it? It's interesting to me that just reversing who's who, because there's almost, there's a very subtle blame on the woman who's conceived here reneging on a contract, mm. but in actual fact I wonder whether it's the donor couple that are um, perhaps... Uh, they've got an expectation of contact, which is perhaps unrealistic. I mean, they're, they're, they're donating um, their embryo, which is a pretty amazing gift, mm. but they're doing that for the purposes of another person having a family, not for them to extend their family. Yeah, and that was part of the reaction. A lot of people sort of read about this story and, and said, well, that's inappropriate to put any obligations and you know requirements upon a couple. You know, you've donated the embryo, let them have their family and have their child free of any ongoing obligations. But then other people came forward and said... Yeah, but they accepted this embryo knowing that it came with those um, obligations and they could have accepted perhaps an embryo from someone where it didn't come with those obligations. So they've already entered into an agreement uh, that they're now reneging on. Right. Interesting. I've got an interesting anecdote to add to this, just to add to the melting pot of things. So I I have an acquaintance who um, she'd she'd struggled to meet the right man and she really wanted to have kids and she was uh, getting a little older and so she decided to have a, a donor... Um, insemination mm. and have two kids. She's got two kids. And she went to, a, which sounds a bit bizarre to me, she went to a barbecue of um, donor kids 
from mm. this one donor. So oh, this this wow. guy in the States has fathered 50 kids from his donated sperm. And so he met she met a lesbian couple who had a son. And so it was obviously the half-brother yeah. of her kids. And they really wanted to have a kind of a extended extend their family a little bit. And she just didn't want anything to do, to do with them. And so she was in this quandary of whether to whether there was any obligation mm. to um, continue a relationship with, with this couple. It's very interesting. Yeah. And that's the other side of this, I guess, about the future child and what right that child has to information about how they came about and what other siblings they might have in the world. In Australia, well, at least in New South Wales where this happened, there's a limit to 10 families that can use, you know, donor sperm or eggs. So you couldn't have a situation where there were 50 families like that scenario that you just yeah, talked right. about in the US. Um, yeah, this yeah. isn't Utah, you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And we've got two very special guests on air today and we've got the first one on the phone all the way from Sydney. I've got my fingers crossed, so can you cross your fingers too because this is in fact the first ever telephone interview that I have done on 3RRR. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? And I'm hoping that in a moment when I ask if Carol's on the phone, she's going to reply with a yes. Carol Ireland is the CEO of Epilepsy Action Australia. Let's see if we've got her on the line. Carol, are you there? I'm definitely here, especially since you two are alone this morning. (laughs) Thank God you're here, Carol. Thank you so much. Good morning. Thanks for taking our call. (laughs) That was Lolly Doc. Um, Wow, well, this is all working really well so far, Carol. (laughs) Now, thanks for being available all the way from Sydney. We wanted to get you on air this morning to talk about epilepsy, obviously. Uh, But there's a couple of things that have happened and that we've heard about in the last couple of weeks that we were particularly interested in getting you to talk about. So we'll get to those in a couple of minutes. But I thought, Carol, it might be worth starting um, by just talking a little bit about, firstly, who you are. So obviously you're the CEO of Epilepsy Action Australia and I'm aware that you've got a background that's spanning about 30 years in the not-for-profit human services sector. Is that right? It is. It is. I actually trained as a rehabilitation counsellor um, in my, my younger days and so very much in the human services and particularly disability area. Um, spent a lot of years in blindness, in Royal Blind Society and in fact worked on the merger between the Victorian organisations and the New South Wales organisations and joined epilepsy about 10 years ago. And was there anything in particular that um, sparked the move to epilepsy, the field of epilepsy? Oh, look, it it was very much a career move from a chief operating officer's role and having worked, um, you know, on a merger um, and moving over to a CEO role. But I do have a brother with epilepsy and um, so I actually grew up um, understanding some of the impact that can be had on families. Fascinating. It's it's odd, you know, when I was thinking about epilepsy this week and, and thinking about this interview with you, I had this memory that came back to me as a kid, you know, being at the Vic Market with my mum and seeing a man on the ground having a fit and that's the, or a seizure, and that's the first sort of experience that I had with epilepsy. And I remember as a kid finding it really frightening and uh, being really scared about what was happening to yeah. this man and, and, and what we could do. And I imagine for some people that's that's their sort of experience with epilepsy as well, perhaps seeing someone having a seizure. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, that, that's true. It's actually a lot more common than, than people realise, and most of us will know someone with epilepsy. Mm. Um, but it's such a complex condition. I mean, what you're describing there that you saw is a convulsive seizure, and, and it's the one most commonly shown in the media, you know, if we see a, a seizure simulated on a television show. Mm. Um, it, it used to be called a grand mal seizure. It's now a tonic-clonic seizure is the correct name. Um, and it is quite confronting. You know, the, the person loses consciousness, they fall to the ground, they're convulsing. And, and it's scary. You, you know, you. I know when my brother had the seizure, the first seizure, and I was only about eight years old, I absolutely thought he was dying. Mm. And um, it was very, very scary. The, the really interesting thing with epilepsy, though, is that's not the most common kind of seizure. Um, there are over 40, 45 different epilepsy syndromes and seizure types. And, um, you know, they're, they're very, very hard to detect sometimes. I mean, people can be taken as being intoxicated, you know, or using drugs or mentally ill or all kinds of things because these seizures are so different. Um, they manifest in different ways, some of them with unconsciousness and some of them not. So mm. it's a really, really hard condition to describe. And I guess one of the things we're going to be talking about with you today is epilepsy in children and what's happening in that mm. field. If there's so many different types of seizures, does it mean that it can be really hard to pick up in kids and, and sort of often stump parents yeah. as to what's going on? Look, that's that's absolutely on the, on the knocker. Um, it sometimes is quite difficult to diagnose. And I know earlier you were explaining that, um, you know, in about 50% of cases, uh, the, the cause isn't found, in fact. Mm. Um, and that's absolutely correct. So what, what you have is um, children having these strange episodes. Um, now, to give you an example, um, another very common type of seizure is called an absence seizure. Used to be petty mal, used to be called petty mal, little seizure. And what's happening is the child is actually blanking out for a few seconds at a time, then going on with their conversation, blanking out again. Now, in days gone by, these kids were accused of just not paying attention. Yeah. You know, imagine trying to stay up, you know, stay up with your, your classmates if, in fact, you're losing a few seconds mm. um, every few minutes out of, out of the conversation. Um, epilepsy isn't easy to diagnose. It, it's basically what you've got happening there is um, almost a misfiring in the brain. You know, it's a disruption to the normal electrochemical activity in the brain. And, you know, there are other other causes of seizures. So, you know, very high temperature and very other things, various other things can cause one-off seizures. So basically epilepsy is diagnosed when there are recurrent seizures. It's, you know, there's no obvious cause. It's happened more than once. And then usually there's a diagnosis of epilepsy. But then there's what syndrome, what particular seizure type and all the, the issues around finding a, a medication that might help. Must be a minefield for parents to navigate. It, it's tough. It's tough. And look, for about 30 to 40% of families, um, their child won't get good seizure control from the current medications that are available. Mm. So, you know, if, you, if you're lucky inverted commas if you're lucky you know you're going to get a medication or a combination of medications that help control the seizures um but if if you're not if you're in that 30 to 40 percent you know those seizures are going to go on and it could be as many as you know dozens or hundreds in a single day my god that's mind-blowing oh look impossible for families yeah you know to lead normal lives impossible so, Carol, that brings me obviously to this sort of question of 
treatments that we're trialling at the moment to treat epilepsy if, if so many seizures are, are sort of untreatable and unpreventable. Uh, and I know that there's some trials going on, I think I've got this right, to do with medicinal cannabis in children. Is that right? That, look, that's correct. I mean, there was once a time when, you know, you would never hear the words children and cannabis <laughs> together in any sort of positive way. Yeah. You know, but... but um, Not that long ago. Probably, <clears throat> that's right, that's right. It's probably the most promising um, treatment option that, that I've seen come up in the last 10 years, you know, in terms of children with intractable epilepsy, medication-resistant epilepsy. And there's a lot of work going on overseas, um, particularly in places like the United States, Israel. Um, they're particularly progressive in this, this area. And there's certainly a compound in the cannabis plant that is an anticonvulsive um, possibly a number of compounds. So the research is underway. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence and there is some research already that's, that's come out. And yes, Australia has certainly entered, you know, entered that field and, and trials are about to get underway. That's amazing. Is there any resistance from parents about that? You know, are they a bit shocked when they first hear that that's what's being trialled or are they just up for anything that might work? Look, I'd say the, the, the change that's occurred in the last two years has been phenomenal and and I'll example my own attitude here you know when I first heard about medicinal cannabis and epilepsy you know I had the reaction that probably the um the general public was having you know I'd never heard anything positive about marijuana and um there's a lot of stigma around marijuana it's I, I often think it's a double whammy because there's still some stigma around um epilepsy if you like in, mm. in the community but um, the attitudes, I think, have changed a great deal in, in that last two years, and particularly the last 12 months. I mean, parents are really looking for this treatment. I mean, the, the sad part about it is that it's taking a very long time for obvious reasons, you know, getting through political minefields and, um, you know, all sorts of issues around the, the legalities and working through that. Um, but parents are quite desperate. You know, those parents yeah. have got children with medication-resistant epilepsy. And, you know, the, the, the truth is um, there are actually a lot of parents already accessing a product, be it illegally, um, they are already accessing that, you know, a product now. Uh, police are being um, very reasonable and have been given permission to turn a blind eye. The results are, are hard to argue to be honest. Fascinating. Uh, you're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking to Carol Ireland who's the CEO of Epilepsy Action Australia. Carol, Lolly Doc in the studio um, has got some questions for you I think. He's got a comic book in front of him. I do Carol and this is very interesting. I've been sitting here reading uh, reading the comics. I love comic books. Um, one of the role of Epilepsy uh, Action Australia is to um, I guess educate and empower um, both um, families and children with epilepsy to, I guess, uh, understand their illness. Um, tell me a little bit about this comic book and how it goes about doing that. Sure. Well, it's it's important to talk to kids on their level. Um, I guess that's the, the first thing. Um, I, I'd say children and youth with epilepsy are particularly vulnerable, you know, in the epilepsy population. And, um, you know, when, you, when you're a kid and particularly, say, you're in your pre-teens or your teens, um, you don't necessarily want to admit you're different to anybody else. You might not want to tell your friends. Um, you know, you might be a bit embarrassed about it. And what better way to talk to kids than through, you know, the medium of a comic and... Um, 
are superheroes, essentially, <laughs> superheroes. So the Medikids, um, you know, superheroes in the book, are helping to educate about epilepsy. And um, it, it's proven to be a, a really great medium for just explaining what epilepsy is, you know, which I think is really, really important. Just, you know, it's a condition of the brain. Any one of us could have this happen. And, and then explaining what happens when a seizure occurs and perhaps how to help. Um, in, in a, a non-confronting way, a very comfortable way. And um, in, in the comic book, you know, we've got a little local hero who's a, a young Melbourne boy called John, Jonty. And, um, you know, Jonty's basically being prevented from playing basketball because of his epilepsy. And, you know, he's explaining to his friends and the Medikids heroes are explaining. And it all becomes quite normalised. And... Um, you know, in the end, Jonty's a little bit of a hero, and that's real life um, as well. Jonty, you know, is able to tell his friends, and um, we find that this is a, a very good way to communicate with kids on their level. Carol, if people wanted to try to get hold of this comic book, you know, for their own families or for a school-based sort of education program, how would they do that? Sure, they can go on our website... So www.epilepsy.org.au and we'll actually be putting it up there and, you know, giving the phone numbers and so on. But they can email us too at epilepsy at epilepsy.org.au or phone us on one three hundred epilepsy And I understand and that book's completely free, Carol. It, it is, it is. So we've actually funded the production of the book. The technical content was additional. It was um, initially written overseas by medical doctors, but we've bought it here, we've Australianised it, made sure it's got all the right terminology and, of course, found our own superhero, our own hero, <laughs> Johnson. Carol, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been um, really enlightening to hear a bit more about epilepsy and, and what's happening in particularly the field for uh, kids. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, but I imagine if people want more information, that would all be available from your website, as you've said. Absolutely, absolutely, or give us a call on that 1300 number, 1300 37 Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and my first telephone interview experience was a total success. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, doctors, and enjoy your day. Thank you. Three triple R. And we've been talking to Carol Ireland from Epilepsy Action Australia, but we're going to change tack and introduce our second very special guest this morning, and that is Professor Lee Waters. Uh, before I start chatting to her, I want to tell you a little bit about her. So, Professor Waters is the Director of the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne, and she's actually the first Australian to be appointed as a Professor in Positive Psychology, and the first Australian to be a Fellow of the International Positive Psychology Association. So, in terms of us wanting to know more about positive psychology, she sounds like the perfect person to have in the studio. Lee also holds an affiliate position with Cambridge University's Wellbeing Institute and the Centre for Positive Organisations at the University of Michigan. She's on the board of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute and she was listed in the top 100 women of influence by the Australian Financial Review last year. Amazing stuff. She's also done a TED Talk, which I watched and loved. And she's currently writing her first book called The Strong Child, Building Optimism, Resilience and Achievement, which is due to come out next year. And we might even get her back on the show at that time. Uh, good morning, Lee. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's our great pleasure to have you in the studio. Uh, now, I was watching your TED Talk and it seems as though this whole sort of 
fascination with positive psychology really started for you quite a few years back when you were a new mum and watching the nightly news. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's exactly right. So, um, look, I've been a psychologist for 20 years and the first part of my career in psychology was very much the sort of traditional psychology, looking at how we fix what goes wrong with people. And um, and I became a new mum and I, I had one of these sort of epiphany moments, if you like. I was watching the nightly news and um, and I burst into tears, huge tears, like, the you know, those really big, <laughs> lots of snot, you know, <laughs> can't see anything. Um, and being a psychologist, of course, I, I started to question, like, well, that's, a, that's an unusual reaction. Mm-hmm. I've watched the news so many times before, what's happening? And But then this other sort of question bubbled up and I thought, why haven't I cried before? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we watch the news and what we see in the news is just the absolute worst side of human nature. It's quite painful to watch the news. And, yes. of course, I was a new mum. I was breastfeeding. You know, I was sensitive to everything. Yeah. And I guess I sort of had this moment where I thought, we get so many messages about what can go wrong with us, so many messages about the negative side of human nature, about our, our greed and our corruption and our capacities to hurt one another. And and I'm looking at my, my newborn son, Nick, and I'm just thinking, this is this is not the side of human nature that I want him to grow up believing in. You know, we by the vast majority of us are good, decent people. And that's why we refer to ourselves as a human kind, hmm. because, you know, we are kind by nature. That's how we've survived as a species. You talked before about this study on cooperation. And, and so I really had that moment where I thought, well, what do I know? What, how can I contribute to my son's life, to the lives of other young people by, by scientifically showing them our good our good side and it just so happened that that was the time where this new field of positive psychology was really starting to take stride I had read Marty Seligman he's the professor at the University of Pennsylvania who sort of launched the field he just published his first book on it called Authentic Happiness which I had read in the final six weeks of my pregnancy (laughs) and so all of these ideas were kind of in my mind and and I really had made a decision you know this is the way I want to parent I want a parent from strengths. I want a parent looking at my kids' good qualities. I want to amplify those. And um, and I want to do more than just have it with within my own family. I want to bring this science to um, a much bigger population of young people. So is that what positive psychology is in a nutshell? Is it sort of looking for the positives in the world? Yeah, absolutely. It's the scientific study of our good qualities, our strengths, um, and what it is that we can do to build ourselves up, live to our full potential and have a positive contribution to others. Kind of like looking on the bright side or is that a bit simplistic? It, looking on the bright side is certainly part of it um, but and, and that's the kind of pleasure part of positive psychology but we also have that meaning side of positive psychology which is, you know, how do we identify our strengths so that we can contribute in good ways towards other people. Um, sometimes we grow not only through looking on the bright side, sometimes the dark side is actually what helps us to grow. And that's a positive experience because we've grown as a result of that and then we can share that experience with others. You talk Lolly about dot. strengths, Lee. Um, you talk about strengths with um, with children. Obviously, children as they grow go through different phases of, of you know different milestones and yeah. different emotional um, components of their growth. H- how do you know what strengths? What strength are you seeing when they're at different phases, and how do you kind of channel those strengths? How do I know it's a strength? Yeah, look, that's a really nice question, and it's a question I get from a lot of parents. And there's sort of two ways to answer that, really. And first, that's to look at kind of what strengths are. And then the second thing is this sort of, well, how do I know if I'm seeing this? Is this kind of just, is this the start of a strength? 
Is it just something random? Um, but to answer the first question, you know, what strengths are? Well, there's lots of different strengths, but the two broad categories are sort of talent and then the positive aspects to our personality. So we, so we all have strengths of talent, and those can be things like um, our sporting ability, our artistic ability, our music ability. Maybe we're particularly good with technology or computers. Maybe we've got a great we've got great communication skills. We've got great capacity to solve problems. So there's sort of that talent category of strengths. And then there's this other category, which is our the, the positive qualities in our personality, what what the psychologists call our strength of character, our character strengths. Mm-hmm. And that's things like our capacity for kindness, our ability to be courageous. Some kids have natural leadership. Some kids are very versatile and adaptable. So we have these sort of two broad categories, um, but often those two categories support each other. So, you know, if you have a talent... Um, you'll you'll often be drawing on these positive aspects, your, your character strengths, to help you build up that talent. And I'll use an example from my own two children. I'm a mother of two, and my son Nicholas, who's 13 now, is quite gifted um, athletically. He's he's a good sport, and he has recently taken up basketball, which for him is a new sport. Um, he's already in, in within season two, starting to show that he does have strength, but it's new for him. He has to learn these things now. At the same time as having that sort of strength of talent one of his strengths of personality is that he's he's a particularly persistent kid you know he's the type of kid who just won't quit until he's learned it until he's nailed it and so what i'm seeing right now playing out in nick is that he has this strength of talent this sort of sporting ability he's he's quick and he's agile and he can read what's happening on the court but he's using his persistence to build up those skills and so i never have to say to nick Maybe he should go and practice. He's always out the back, you know, <laughs> shooting baskets and, and, and practicing different fake to the left, drive to the right kind of moves. So there are these two broad categories, but they often, they're, they're used in concert with each other to really sort of bring that strength and that talent to its full potential. So once you can identify these strengths, you know, and we're talking about parenting specifically, you mm. know, as an avenue to talk about um, strength-based living uh so once you can identify these strengths in your kids how does that actually translate to parenting on a day-to-day basis what would you do differently if you were trying to be a strength strengths based parent after yeah. mouthful strength strength based parent yeah. yeah and that's a nice question too so um look the first thing to do essentially what i'm talking about with strength-based parenting is it's just an approach or a style to parenting where you where the parent seeks to intentionally focus on the strengths, the good qualities, the skills, the abilities in their children and seek to build those up. You know, and as parents, we have um, great responsibility for the sort of developmental process that we offer to our kids. And all parents, really, we share the same goalpost, and that is to um, raise our kids in a way so that when we deliver them into adulthood, they're, they're fully formed, robust, resilient, you know, positive, productive members of society. Um, the thing is that a lot of parents make the assumption or operate on the assumption that the best way to do that, the best way to create a fully formed adult is to spend our time as a parent identifying what are the flaws, what are the faults, what are the weaknesses in our kids and say, well, while we've got them under our care, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that I fill in these flaws, I eradicate these weaknesses, I, I um, reduce the sort of um, limitations of my children and and that's my job as a parent what I'm doing is I'm getting rid of all of these weaknesses and flaws and faults so that when they get into adulthood those things won't limit them in their adult life uh, but what my research is showing is there is a different approach there is a different way of reaching that same goalpost of 
developing a fully formed functional adult. And that is instead of spending our time identifying what's wrong with our kid and and making sure that's all fixed before they get into adulthood, is instead identifying what's right with them and building and amplifying their strengths. And when I, um, one of the exercises I run in my parent workshops is I ask the parents to imagine your child as a lump of clay. So take a lump of clay and shape it into the form of your child, about the same height as your child, about the same body shape as your child. Visualise their sort of their head, their shoulders, their arms, their, their torso and their legs. And what you'll see in that, that lump of clay is that there are some parts of the clay that are already fully formed. And, you know, they're kind of born that way with that. Some parts of the clay are just beautifully sculpted already without you really having to do much as a parent. They would be the strengths of your child. And then, of course, what you'll see is that there are some parts of the clay where there are holes. It's not sh- it's a little bit misshapen or there's a hole, multiple holes, really, some, some big, some small. And guess what? If you did that shape of clay for yourself, that would be exactly the same. You would have holes too. So in a way, we sort of operate under this false assumption that we can make someone fully formed you know, in, in adulthood. And as part of our journey as adults is we're still sort of forming and shaping ourselves. But in this exercise, when that's done, I ask parents, okay, what are you going to do? And the natural inclination for a parent is to say, well, I need to patch the holes. I need to get some extra putty and some extra clay and I need to start filling in all of these holes because that's my job as a parent. I want to make sure that I've completed this sort of whole person. Um, And so what I I say to the parents is, okay, just bear with me for a moment, but imagine if instead of spending your time as a parent filling in these holes, patching in and fixing the weaknesses, the flaws, the limitations, etc., imagine instead if you spent more of your time growing the strengths of your children and what you start to see is the bits of the the clay that are already formed they start to expand and they grow and as they expand and grow of course the holes just by default become smaller and smaller and smaller because that space is now occupied by a strength it's a beautiful analogy yeah i'm I'm actually thinking about clay and uh, making my kids in my image (laughs) <laughs> is that a bit narcissistic? No holes whatsoever. No, no, There's no, a little exactly. bit of projection going yeah, on possibly. there, yeah. which is not quite the strength base. And, no. But that you do raise an interesting point, actually, because it is easier for us to see see our own strengths in others. And sometimes that's, that, that can raise a bit of a tension between a parent and a child. If the child has a sort of unique set of strengths that are different to the parents, the parents not, may not be seeing this as a strength and may be sort of thinking... This is a weakness. I've got to fill it in. I've got to mould it and shape it and, mm. and change it. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking to Professor Lee Waters about strength-based parenting. Lolly Doc. I've got two gorgeous kids, Luca and Josie. They're pro- I'm sure they're listening two right Two gorgeous lumps of clay. That's right, two gorgeous <laughs> lumps of clay who look just exactly like me. Um, and uh, Luke, Luke is a bit of a talker. He's right. a bit of a jibber-jabberer. Um, okay. and, and we're talking off-air about how... I actually really like what he says. He expresses himself really well and he's quite articulate, but he just doesn't stop talking. And I've often focused on telling him to just shut up. (laughs) Um, And I wonder whether I'm going about that all wrong. How do you balance, um, I guess, overdeveloping a strength Mm -hmm. with um, that becoming the only kind of component of your 
kids' interactions or, yeah. or focus. Yeah, look, so there's a couple of things to do there. And, and the first thing that I want to say is adopting a strength-based approach, it doesn't mean that you ignore the weaknesses. It doesn't mean that you say, let's only focus on strengths. What, what, uh, what it means is that you spend more of your intentional focus on building up strengths and sort of counteracting the fact that we would naturally think our job is to fi- fix the weaknesses. So that's the first point. The second thing is to reframe it in your own mind like this is a strength that he has it's good that he he wants to connect with people that he's using communication as a tool to connect and as you say he's articulate Um, he's able to express his ideas clearly so these are all great strengths so um, perhaps instead of always saying is to to kind of reframe that and say you know what I love it that you're such a good communicator I love it that you're interested in ideas I love it that you want to share your ideas with us Um, but how about at the moment you know I want to read your sister wants to get a word in so you're just starting by saying this is this is not a bad thing about you it's a strength but you need to learn how to use it more sensibly and then the other thing from that is is strength-based parenting is, is to identify this is a strength in my kid Maybe I should be putting him onto the debating team. Maybe I should be getting him into get him the on radio. Exactly, that's what I was just about to say. Get him, get Gosh, him into the us. studio. Well, you know, you did just say you were fashioning them in your image. That's true, <laughs> Lee. I've got a couple of friends who are primary school teachers, mm-hmm. and they often talk about you know a new breed of children <clears throat> that are being rewarded for everything that they do, even mm-hmm. the everyday things that they would be expected to do. Is there a risk that we're going to be creating spoiled little brats who are just getting all this positive reinforcement and told that everything they do is wonderful all the time? Yeah. Look, um, that is such a good question to ask and that that, that is, I think, one of the... um uh, arguments against strength-based parenting is that we're going to breed this whole sort of army of narcissists who think everything they do is amazing. And But, look, the truth is that even though it doesn't sound this way, it creates the opposite. Um, narcissism occurs because of an overinflated sense of self, right? Strength-based parenting is connecting your children with what is real about them. This is a real strength in you. And the more that you're able to do that, the more you're able to have the constructive conversations around these are your flaws, these are your limitations, these are some things that we need to work on. So actually what it does is it gives children a genuine and real sense of confidence. So they don't have to be this sort of overinflated, look at me, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me. Because they've already got that inner knowledge of Mm. this is who I am, this is what I'm good at, this is what I can offer. Lee, I'm aware that we are fast running out of time and I want people to know how they can get more information about this. So you do have a book that's being um, finished at the moment and is coming out next year. But in the meantime, you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Prof Lee Waters. And so my name is spelled L-E-A. A A lot of people assume it's L-E-E. That's a a strength. (laughs) That's a strength? It's one, one, no H. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. So at Prof Lee Waters, um, they can follow me on Twitter and I, I and I tweet a lot, especially about the latest science that's coming forward. Okay. They can visit my website, mm-hmm. um, which is just leewaters.com, mm-hmm. and they'll get a lot of information there about the research I'm doing around strength-based parenting. And if they connect with me on their website, my website, they'll go into the database and so they'll get an email about when the book's being released. Fantastic. And there's a documentary on the ABC coming up this week. Is it Tuesday night? Tuesday night at 8.30, Revolution School. And, um, and that's showing the research that I do, the strength-based research I do with young people in schools. 
Fantastic. Thank you for your time, Lee. It's been wonderful to hear about. My pleasure. That's pretty much it for us today, guys. I think we got through, Lolly Doc. Well done. Survived. Thank you so much to Tim Thorpe for stepping in with pushing the buttons. We'd be lost without you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Professor Lee Waters. Thanks, Carol Island, for joining us all the way from Sydney. Stay tuned because the scientists are waiting to bring you another hour of fascinating stuff and we'll be back next week at 10am. Hi, this is Jermaine Greer. If you're looking for something more than the 30-second soundbite world of mainstream media, then you've come to the right place. 3 FM, non-commercial, not-for-profit, listener-funded, independent radio. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.